For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is God's word. Well, happy Father's Day. Glad to see the fathers who have joined us today. Before we get started, just a brief Word to the dads in the room. Fathers, I need you to understand, thing, understand something vitally important this morning, and it's this. You matter. You matter in the lives of those you are involved with. The greatest gift you could ever give cannot be bought at a store or worked for or earned. The greatest, you can, the greatest gift you can give is the gift of yourself the gift of your presence to the people in your life. I need you to understand that your voice carries an immense weight. Your presence creates worlds of possibilities in the life of your kiddos, and your love has an incredible power behind it. So steward that power well. Use the gifts that God's given you wisely. And know this, no one ever expects their dad to be perfect, they just need a dad who's intentional. So you're going to stumble and fall all along the way. Just keep showing up. Just keep being there. And I want to say, the need for our hour are fathers who are intentional. May we be those kind of fathers. And may we raise up and love and bless and serve future generations that will follow Jesus. Do not lose heart, dads. The work you're doing matters. And we thank you for your work. Yeah, yeah. There we go. All righty. So there is a gap between knowledge and experience. And like all half-decent sermons, we begin with a movie reference. The movie reference is Goodwill Hunting. This came out in like the 90s, so again, spoiler alert, but it's the like the 90s-ish, 2000s, so it's on you if you haven't seen it by this time. And it's also like super popular, so it's really on you if you haven't seen this. This is a niche, you know? So um, there's a scene from the life of, in, the scene in Goodwill Hunting where Sean, Walt, Robin Williams' character, um, and Will, who is played by Matt Damon, I think I have a picture somewhere. No, don't have a picture? That's on me, my bad. Had a picture downloaded, it didn't put it in the slideshow, so that's fun. But they're sitting on a park bench <laughs> in Boston Commons. And this is a crucial moment in the storyline. So Matt Damon's character, Will, is like a certifiable genius. Um, but he spends his days 
working blue-collar jobs and getting in fistfights at bars. And this guy, like, has complex understanding of, like, super high advanced math theory and all this other stuff, and he spends his days doing that. And so, um, through a series of events, super famously, he's a janitor at a college and, like, completes this really difficult problem on the board, um, gets found out, um, and is also looking at some prison time. So the way he gets out of prison is that he has to assist these professors and educators at MIT in solving these difficult math equations or whatever. I'm not a math guy, so something along those lines. However, part of his bargain with these uh, professors is he has to see a therapist. Now, being a genius, he mocks and humiliates all of the therapists he comes to see. Like, he just makes fools of them. You know, he kind of, like, plays into their game, and they think they're getting somewhere with him, and then he just, like, laughs it off like, you think you could really fool me. And so he, he kind of comes to the last straw, which is Robin Williams' character, who's a therapist, and they kind of meet. And in doing so, uh, Will shows up, and he sees a, a picture that he had painted and kind of begins to critique his painting based on some of the colors he chose and things like that and just rips this guy's life apart. Um, and so the scene that I'm going to talk about right now is the scene immediately following after that where they meet for their next session. And Robin Williams says this to him. Now... Side note, this is edited for our context because there's just a few lines <laughs> that don't really fit here, but here we go. So he says this. He says, I thought about what you said about me the other day, about my painting. I stayed up half the night thinking about it, and then something occurred to me, and I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep, and I haven't thought about you since. You know what occurred to me? You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. And it's all right. You've never been out of Boston. So if I asked you about art, you'd give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. His life's work, his political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole thing, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, our dear friends. But you'd never been near one. Never held the, the head of your best friend in your lap and watched him gas his last breath looking to you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Know someone who could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel and to have to love her and be there for her through anything, through cancer. You wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And in the Robin Williams way, says a couple more things. And walk, get, getting up from the park bench, he says, your move, chief, and walks away. And I love that. But he's getting at something important here, and it's this. There's a difference between knowledge and experience. And something happens when you cross that line. For example, you are in your late teens, early 20s, 
And part of that stage of life is you think you know everything. You do. You, like, have the whole world figured out. You know, your parents are wrong about everything. You knew about everything. Pff, this is going to be easy. And then life happens a bit, and it beats that idealism and romanticism out of your body. And you realize at some point, hopefully sooner than later, that all that wisdom you received before, if you had just had ears to hear, could have saved you from a lot of pain. Right? When you uh, don't have a kids yet or a family yet, you, um, let's say you're hanging out with somebody who does have kids, and you get in their car, and there's Cheerios smashed in the seat. For some reason, every surface is sticky, right? You're like, what is going on? And you tell yourself, Psh, when I have kids, my car is never looking this way. <laughs> yeah, the laughter tells you everything you need to know. And then, somewhere along the line, you have some kiddos of your own. And you realize you're going to be picking up a friend to go to something. And you realize, I have to clean this tornado that is the back of my car. And so you're there vacuuming and cleaning and, you know, doing all the stuff and get it all ready. And then the morning of, your kid has a meltdown because they can't find a toy they lost two and a half months ago and have not thought about since then. So there's tears, both you and the kid crying, right? Which caused you to not be able to eat breakfast. So you just slam a bunch of Cheerios in a Ziploc bag and give your kid an orange juice, which he thinks that the Cheerios are super cool to smash in the sides of his car seat. And with the juice, he's like, what happens if I just fling this around, you know? And so by the time your friend gets in the car, the three and a half hours of work you put the day before, all out the window in a moment. And you realize something. Knowledge and experience aren't necessarily the same thing. It's one and to be on one side of thing, and I will never, or I would, or this, that, or whatever. But being in the trenches, being in the mix of it all, is a completely different thing. Now, the same thing happens in the journey of faith, when you cross the line from knowledge to experience, right? It's one thing to know that Jesus died for you. It's another thing to experience the love of God. It is one thing to know God is Father. It's another thing to experience what it's like to be his kid. It's one thing uh, to know that God speaks. It's another to experience your life being laid open before God and feel the comfort of his care. This is why when the biblical authors talk about knowing God, they do not mean the ability to process information, but rather a way of knowing that comes through experience. In Hebrew, the word to know is the Hebrew word yada. Try it. Give it a shot. Okay, three of you had the courage. The rest of you weaseled out. The last chance. Yada. There we are. It means to know, but it carries with it some other nuances as well, such as to notice, hear of, learn, reveal, realize. Now, what's interesting is the biblical authors take this word yada to talk about marital intimacy. For example, when Adam and Eve conceive Cain, the biblical text tells us that Adam knew his wife. He yada her. The idea being that it's not just a knowing of her existence, but it's a knowing in an experiential kind of way. And so this is the biblical paradigm for knowing. It is not simply the receiving or retention of information, but is the, it's, it's living into the information that is presented in a way that's experiential. So another really important word here in the book of Ephesians is the word that gets translated revelation. 
In Greek, this is the word apocalypsis, which sounds a lot like the English word apocalypse. There you go. Now, when we think about that word apocalypse, what comes to mind? End of the world, fire, possibly aliens, right? AI maybe, you know, all these different things come to mind. Is that what the biblical authors have in mind? No. The word apocalypse simply means to reveal or unveil. So to have an apocalypse is to see the true nature of something you could not see before. And I think the word revelation carries with it that same thing we kind of still use it today. Like she had a revelation. She became aware of something that was always there but that she was just previously blind to. So in the scriptures, an apocalypse is where God pulls back the curtains and reveals things for how they actually are. Tim Mackey says, an apocalypse is when the bond between heaven and earth becomes visible to you. Now, Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, had a pretty profound apocalypse himself. You see, when we first meet Paul in the biblical narrative, he is standing in approval of the martyring of Stephen. Stephen is a follower of Jesus, and he's being killed for his confession that Jesus is Lord. And we find Paul looking on from a distance with approval. Later, when we find Paul, he's on his way to a place called Damascus, where he is going to stomp out, to stamp out the followers of Jesus there. And on the road, he has an apocalypse. He receives a vision where he sees Jesus, and Jesus tells him, essentially, the very thing you think you're fighting for, you're fighting against. You're fighting against me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're putting your hope in. And so in a remarkable turn of events, Paul loses his actual eyesight until somebody prays for him and he receives his eyesight back. A follower of Jesus praying for Paul. And this fundamentally shifts the whole trajectory of Paul's life. And he goes on to follow Jesus after that moment. On that road, Paul has an apocalypse. He sees a vision of Jesus. Now, coming into our teaching text today, Paul is praying that we would have an apocalypse too, that we would have a revelation of who Jesus is. What's beautiful, verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1 are all Paul's song about what's been done in Messiah Jesus. And verses 15 through 23 are all his prayer that this would be realized in the churches in Ephesus. The heart of this prayer is that this community would be shaped by reality. Not just reality as they perceive it, but reality as it actually is. You see, according to the biblical authors, reality is not that just what we see, but it's also what we can't see which is a theme all throughout the narrative of the scriptures, and it's a repeated idea here in Paul's letter to this community in Ephesus. And so Paul wants this community to view their life through the lens of ultimate reality. Again, Mackey says, to think apocalyptically is to think Christianly, to view this present moment in light of ultimate reality, and in ultimate reality, heaven and earth are one. And so Paul begins... He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. First, for this reason. Paul is calling back here to everything he just said in chapter 1. For this reason is in light of everything just described in these verses before. Then he moves on saying, since I've heard. Now, 
If you remember, um, when John taught Acts 19 and did a great job doing that, Paul spent a significant amount of time in Ephesus. But something happened as Paul left. The church grew. The word spread throughout all of Asia. And so most Bible scholars believe that this isn't only written to that small community he planted, but all of the other followers of Jesus who have come along the way in the same city and in the surrounding region, regions of Asia. So a lot of people believe this is a circular letter uh, that would get passed from community to community that Paul wrote for this general area. And this explains kind of why this letter has a different tone. If you read Thessalonians or Corinthians, Paul has specific issues he's trying to address with those communities. Ephesians, it's kind of more broad sweeping terms and uh, broad sweeping ideas in terms of who the church is supposed to be. Um, in her identity. And so this is kind of explains a bit of that. And so chapters one and three, one through three rather, are all about this apocalypse. What happens when we realize who Jesus is? And verses four through six are about how we respond to that. So one through three is our understanding of the apocalypse and four through six are how we respond in light of that apocalypse. Now, this is the context to which uh, Paul is writing. Now, Richard Hayes, a biblical scholar I, I really admire, I think he's brilliant, he says this, that in Paul's letter, he's cultivating an exalted cosmic ecclesiology, which if you want to just impress somebody at lunch, drop that line on them, you know? What do you think about Paul's efforts to make an exalted cosmic ecclesiology in, in Ephesians? Boom, you got him. But it's a fancy way of saying a high view of who we are as the church in light of the universe, in light of all things, essentially. And this is Paul's effort here in the book of Ephesians. And so the idea here in the letter is Paul wants to get the church to see themselves as vitally important to what God is doing here on the earth. And so I want you to notice next what Paul hears about this community. He hears first about their faith. He hears that this new community of Jesus followers is declaring their loyalty to Jesus. And notice the term he uses for Jesus here, which isn't necessarily Pauline. He doesn't use this a lot, but he uses the term Lord Jesus here, which isn't super common for Paul. But he's trying to convey a really important truth. In Rome, it was a common phrase, and it was this, Caesar is Lord. Right? You're living underneath the thumb of the Roman Empire, the common rhetoric amongst communities in the Roman Empire was that Caesar was Lord. Now, this for sure had political connotations to it, that he was kind of king and ruler, but it also had religious connotations to it, the idea that Caesar was a son of God. He was to be treated like a deity amongst the Roman people. And so, to say the phrase that Jesus is Lord is a contradiction to Caesar being Lord, and these followers of Jesus are fundamentally saying that Jesus is the supreme king over everything, and he's the one in whom our allegiance lies. This would get you killed in Rome because you are seen as antagonistic towards Caesar and towards the government there. And so when Paul says, I've, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's acknowledging the risk this community is taking and acknowledging Jesus is Lord. Now, we have a paradigm that is not ancient at all, and it's this idea that belief is private, that faith is privatized, that it's just a set of ideas or values you hold close to you, but in the public sphere, it's not really appropriate. This is nowhere to be found in ancient thought and nowhere to be found in most of history, this idea that faith would be privatized. 
faith is a very public thing. It's super foreign to the church and, I would argue, the way of Jesus. The very presence of faith demands what the early church calls a confession of faith. So what would happen in the early church if you'd want to come and follow Jesus, you wouldn't make a decision privately in your seat, in your own heart, in a gentle whisper or whatever, or do the thing where you raise your hand with all eyes closed and nobody looking around. That's pretty new. <laughs> they didn't do that in the early church. You would make a confession of faith, meaning you would stand before the community and you would confess what most Bible scholars believe were the early iterations of the Apostles' Creed. You would say what you believe. Now, a lot of other cultures understand this more deeply than we do here in the West, so much so that even still today, if you've come from a very devout like Muslim faith and you come to faith in Jesus and you are baptized, some fa families will hold funeral services for the kids who profess faith in Jesus or the family members who profess faith in Jesus because to them, they're dead. They've accepted Jesus as Lord. They've responded to that call. And so now they're, they're treated as dead. They're no, longer a, they're no longer alive to them as a family. And so there's great cultural implications for choosing to, ha to have faith in Jesus and great, you know, real painful consequences for that. So in the early church, before you'd be baptized, you'd have to make this confession that you believe that Jesus is Lord. And it impacted every aspect of your life. And so this was the declaration of what you believed, and in doing so, you would go into the waters of baptism, being associated with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Church father Karl Barth says, for faith that believes in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot refuse to become public. It must come forth. It must be released out into life. But next, notice what Paul says. He hasn't just heard of their faith but he's also heard of their love towards God's holy people. You see, the decision to follow Jesus does not just mean an intellectual decision that has cultural implications. The outworking of faith, hear me in this, is always love. They always go in tandem. Now, love is not merely an emotion or a way of feeling, but it is an active, uh, it, it is a, a verb. It is the actively seeking the good of another person. Now, notice where this love is primarily directed. It is towards God's people. This sounds a lot like Jesus, don't you think? When Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by what? The love you have one for another. This is clearly what Paul is calling out here, that, that, that the proof of their discipleship is in the pudding, if you will, of their love towards one another. So Paul opens up this section celebrating and giving thanks to God for what he's doing among these new communities in Ephesus. But Paul doesn't just celebrate and give thanks. He also prays, verse 17. He says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now something super cool Paul does, specifically in these first few chapters of Ephesians, is he again highlights the community of love, the trinity that God had, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now notice, he says he keeps on asking, which means that Paul is in the posture of continually praying for this church. But here's a really thing I want you to notice how he prays. He doesn't pray for circumstances. He prays for their posture, for their understanding, for their wisdom. Now, how we typically treat prayer is in moments of crisis, 
Things are going bad, therefore we pray. We want things to go better, therefore we pray. Paul's posture of prayer is not to, you know, fix this lady's leg or give this community more money or do any of those things, but it's that they would have a deep and and meaningful encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, does this mean it's like inappropriate to pray for the leg? And all? Of course not. But that's not Paul's primary um, um, uh, intention with his prayer. It starts somewhere else, somewhere that will have much more impact in all of these areas of life is this, if this thing gets resolved first. Now, um, one of the interesting things here, some of your translations may have spirit here undercase and some of your translations may have it uppercase. There's been a big debate about this over years. Short story is I think it's uppercase for a lot of reasons. But it is the spirit who gives revelation and wisdom. And we'll talk about these two words in a moment. But first, understanding that the spirit gives these things. When Jesus leaves his disciples, what is one of the primary tasks of the spirit? It is to testify of the Lord Jesus. That's one of the things that Jesus says, that the spirit will come to testify of himself. And so it was one of the great responsibilities of the Spirit to bring light to who Jesus is. And it's this that Paul prays into, that they would continually receive God's Spirit, who's going to be testifying of Jesus in revelation and in wisdom. Now, wisdom being uh, discernment to know what is good and not good and how to live that out, and revelation being that word, apocalypse. He's wanting them to have an apocalypse of who Jesus is. For what reason? So that you may know him better. This is the central heart of Paul's prayer, that you would know him better. Now, if I could lean in for a moment pastorally here. There are too many followers of Jesus that are living off someone else's apocalypse, that are living off someone else's revelation of Jesus. You are banking on the faith of your father, your mother, your friend, the pastoral team here, etc., to be your um, to, to be the, the framework that holds up your life. Your faith, your your experience of Jesus is entirely dependent on this gathering, on what we're doing here, on worship and teaching here. And outside of this, there is no encounter with Jesus. Paul's desire is that every single person in the community would have their own apocalypse of Jesus, this own unveiling of Jesus, this own revealing of Jesus. And hear me in this, that only happens in the secret place. It only happens as you come to meet with God. No eyes, no attention, no clout, alone in the secret place. It is there that God reveals more and more of himself. And this is what Paul is praying. And this is my prayer for us as a community. That every single person in this room would see Jesus for who he really is. And that that would be the substance of their faith, would be an encounter with him. In a way that shifts the trajectory of your life. Now here's what's beautiful. The tense in which Paul speaks here is not that you get this revelation once and then you live the rest of your life but that God will continue to unveil and reveal Jesus to you as you maintain open to the Spirit's influence. 
And here's my sense. Some of you in this room are closed off to that for a variety of reasons. Some may just be you're too busy. And, and, and that's never a good thing. You have so much going on in your life that there is no space for God to move in it. And here's the thing. You do not want to get to the end of your life feeling like you've wasted it all on things that didn't matter. Some of you, it's because of sin. Sin is keeping you from God. But the scriptures say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning that God is not looking down at his nose at you. He is a father running out to his child to embrace him in his arms. And he's saying, just come home. Just leave that stuff behind. It's weighing you down. Come and have an encounter with me. Notice what he prays next. He says, I pray that their eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for, this, for those of us who believe. The language Paul uses here is the eyes of your heart being opened, which growing up in church, I can't help but think of one song, and you know it, Open the eyes of my heart. I'm not going to start singing it for you. I'm not going to ruin you guys like that. But when I come to this passage, that's the thing that I think of. Now, that language of eyes of the heart is kind of strange if we're a bit honest, but I think you get at what Paul is getting at here. For the Jewish people, Ben Witherington, the heart was for the somatic person the seat of thoughts and will as well as emotions. So in Jewish mind, you live from the heart. Obviously, I mean, and literally, in a sense, and that it pumps blood through your body. But, you know, that's kind of where, the, for the Jewish mind, that's where all of the stuff was happening was internally in the heart. Not necessarily the mind, but there in the heart is where you live out of. And so Paul asked that at that place of encounter, the eyes are opened. Here's the thing. You might have knowledge you might know all the answers to the test. You know what I'm saying? What do you believe? Do you believe in the Apostles' Creed, this, that, whatever? But you do not have an encounter. The eyes of your heart have not been opened. And that leaves you disjointed from Jesus. Jesus says these words, remain in me and I will remain in you. There's this close living together intimacy that's experiential. It's not just knowing the right doctrine and believing the right things about God. It is doing life with him. There's a verse that's always, always resonated with me deeply. It's when Jesus says, that you've done many things in my name. You've casted out demons in my name. You've healed the sick in my name. But I never knew you. Which means it's entirely possible to read your Bible, to pray, to do all of the things and not actually know Jesus. Because he's a person, not a set of ideas you have in your mind. And so it's possible to live your whole life checking all the right theological boxes and miss Jesus. Just like it's possible for you to be married to somebody and not be in love with them. You could have met all the necessary requirements, but you do not yada them. You do not know them. And Jesus is inviting us into that deep experiential knowing down in the, in the deep inner parts of your being. And so it's possible to have the right answers but miss Jesus. Don't believe me? Look at the Pharisees. They had.
had all the right answers, but they missed Jesus before their eyes. The same could be true of you. So Paul wants them to see Jesus in a way that's real. And I love the language he uses, that the eyes of their hearts would be open. All of Paul's life, he saw through his eyes, but he missed Jesus. But it wasn't until he had an apocalypse that his eyes were actually opened, that he saw Jesus for the first time, where his heart was opened up to Jesus in a new way. And this is what Paul is praying for this community. Now, what does he want them to see? First, he wants them to see the hope to which they have been called. What is this hope? It's everything he's been saying in this chapter already. It's all that the Messiah has done for us. Peter O'Brien says this, The hope to which God has called them is linked with the summing up of all things in Christ, which is the final purpose of God's saving activity in the Son. It is heaven and earth being reunited. Richard Hayes, the long meditative introduction of Ephesians is then a prayer, I love this, for the church's imagination. The apostle prays that his readers will find the eyes of their hearts illuminated to grasp the overwhelming, overwhelmingly glorious significance of God's plan to bring about reconciliation of the whole universe in and through Christ's cosmic body, the church. The invitation is to rest in the reality that heaven and earth have been reunited in Jesus and one day will be reunited in totality. Second thing he wants them to see is their inheritance. So to be totally honest with you, every time I read this passage, I was like, yeah, like the good stuff we get when Jesus returns and heaven and earth are reunited. That's like the inheritance, right? It's like what we gain. But I want you to notice something. Whose inheritance is this according to the text? Is it our inheritance or his? This isn't a trick question. It's his. It's not ours. That's what the text says. Of his inheritance. So what is Jesus' inheritance? It's Father's Day, right? One of the hardest things to do is get a gift for the guy who has everything. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you start running out of things. What could you possibly give Jesus? Well, according to the scriptures, the inheritance he receives is us. We are God's inheritance. And that's what the rest of the Ephesian goes on to say, that the church is the bride whom he receives. It is his inheritance. Think about this. Of all the things he wants, he wants you. That's it. Isn't this the story of the scriptures, of God doing everything he possibly can to reconcile heaven and earth? that we might be with him, that we might experience life with him. We are his inheritance. Peter O'Brien, God's people comprising of both Jews and Gentiles are his inheritance, his own possession, and whom he will display to the universe the untold riches of his glory. And last, he wants us to see power. Last, Paul wants us to know about his great power which he's going to go on to explain in just a moment, which he says this. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. So he says that this power is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. But this begs the question, what is power, according to the biblical author's imagination? Like, is it influence? Is it physical strength? What is power? Power, according to the biblical narrative, is the ability to overcome evil. 
It's the ability to instead choose good. That's power. It's to be freed from the bondage of slavery and set free to life in Messiah, Jesus. It is about overcoming darkness. It is about overcoming death. And we see this fully realized in Jesus. What's really cool is the the phrase, the dead here, is literally in Greek, the dead ones, which has important implication. Klein Snodgrass, the man, the myth, the legend, right? He's, if it, he will never hear this, but if he did, he'd probably kind of be upset. Sorry, Clyde. We, Klein, we love you. But the point is not that Christ was raised from the state of death, but that he was raised from the dead ones. This is an important difference, for it suggests that his resurrection was not viewed as an isolated event, but as the first stage in the future resurrection. His resurrection is an inauguration of the final resurrection. To put it simply, because Jesus rose, we will rise too. That's the power that Paul is trying to get us to see. He goes on. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Paul sees that when Jesus rises from the grave, it is not just a miracle, but something cosmic is happening here. Something with great significance. That Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, Daniel 7, I did a ton of work of that Son of Man stuff, that he is the human one who will now reign. Story of God, go back, listen to all that kind of stuff. But in doing so, Jesus exalts him above all powers, principalities, authorities. Now, what Paul is trying to get us to see is reality here. Now, is Paul talking about Rome, emperors, Caesars, or is he talking about spiritual powers, demonic entities, the Satan, etc.? The answer, yes. He's talking about all of these things. He's talking about all of these tiers of powers who are under the influence of the snake. Jesus is now above. He echoes the same thing in Colossians where he says he triumphed over his enemies by way of the cross, making a public spectacle of them. It's this idea that Jesus has now been seated above all because he came to serve all. And so what Paul is inviting us to see, and we're going to explore this in coming weeks, namely in Ephesians 6, is that there's a whole other reality that Paul's trying to get us to see here. And it's not just the people and places of power. It's the beings and entities behind those places of power that are giving great influence. And Jesus is above them all. Now, an important theme here is the theme of now and not yet. Because this begs the question, if Jesus is above all of these powers, why on earth is earth still so hard? (laughs) You know what I mean? Why is there still evil and injustice and brokenness if Jesus is exalted? I'm so glad you asked. You guys are the best. So I have a little thing here. Yeah, there it is. So as a quick, you know, I didn't come up with this. This is not the genius of Andrew or something. This is Tim Mackey. So thank Tim Mackey for this. But in the biblical author's imagination, there are two ages. This age and the age to come. This is how they divide history. There's the time we're living in and the time that's coming on the way. People have kind of changed this language now to what's called the now and the not yet. Like it's here and it's on the way. And so what are, the, what are the realities of living in this age? Evil and sin, death, slavery, violence, and the curse. To which we would all say, yeah, that's most of our experience here on planet Earth is that those things are present. 
But something happened in the life of Jesus. You see the cross, that's Calvary, the empty tomb. He's rising. You can admit, that's kind of cool. Again, not me, Tim Mackey. But that's cool. Tat ideas, anyone? All right. So in Jesus, right, th- something happens. They call it an inaugurated eschatology, which means new creation breaking in right now. Some Bible scholars call this the launching of new creation, and I love that imagery. But that something happened when Jesus rose from the grave in that the future came now. It was present in the life of Jesus. And something also miraculous happens. It's kind of like a throwaway line in the Gospels, but it's an evidence that this happened. When Jesus rose from the grave, he wasn't the only one. There's this little line in the Gospels that says, and other people rose from the dead too. And that's just there. Excuse me? What? Yeah. New creation broken so powerfully that it didn't just affect the life of Jesus, it affected other people as well, too. New creation just burst upon the scene when Jesus rose from the grave. And the biblical authors want us to see is that new creation started now. But is it fully here? No. There's a biblical motif throughout the scriptures called the day of the Lord. And the, the prophets use this primarily. And it's this day they envision when God's justice and his rule will be fully here on earth as it is in heaven, like Jesus prays for. And so all throughout the biblical prophets, they're looking for this day of the Lord. Now, there's many days of the Lord that come when, you know, an evil empire gets judged, etc., etc. Some part of justice breaks through. Those are many days of the Lord. But there's the day of the Lord that's coming where Jesus returns and he sets all things right again. And all the injustice and wickedness is dealt with. So the new creation, in contrast to, so the age to come, in contrast to the age we're in, is filled with justice and love, life, freedom, shalom, and blessing. And that will be fully realized in the return of Jesus, where heaven and earth are fully reunited again, and we reign and rule with God as intended back in Genesis. This is... the imagination that Paul has in his mind. And so when Paul says that Jesus has been exalted, he's talking about this, but he's also looking forward to that. He's saying it's already started to happen. It's here, and it's on the way. And Jesus' kingdom is breaking into our world. And the phrase that they use is inaugurated eschatology. Lynn Kohick, she says this, Paul indicates that believers enjoy both realities, now and not yet, now, He does not completely collapse the future into the present, but he does reimagine the temporal timeline such that believers stand in two places at the same time. That's why Paul uses languages that we are citizens of heaven. It's like, yes, I live in Los Lunas, New Mexico. However, I'm also living in the kingdom of God at the exact same time. He goes on to say, And God placed all these things under his feet and appointed him, being Jesus, to be the head over everything in the church, which is his body. The word church is the word ecclesia, and it literally means the called out ones. And thinking about that phrase in light of Ephesians 1, we as the followers of Jesus are the called out ones to be Jesus' body here in the world. Jesus is the head, but the church is his body. We are his, in the language of Paul, ambassadors. We are God's representatives to the world. And what 
Paul is trying to get us to see here is that in Jesus' exaltation, he's also commissioning us for mission to go and to continue the work that he's already done. And the last line, and we'll end this plane now, is he says this, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This all ties back into chapter 1, verse 10, that everything ultimately culminates in Jesus when he reunites everything together and that God's presence would be unleashed, the fullness of him filling everything. Now, here's the wonderful thing. The church is the people that have been filled with God, his presence, his power, and are being unleashed on the world that his presence might permeate every square inch of creation. This is the call here. Again, Snodgrass says, an essential characteristic of Christianity is the tilt towards the future. And Paul desires his readers to have a sense of what God's present call means for their future. To put it simply, it's this. We live in light of the future that's coming. And it shapes the decisions we make today. It shapes the way we live today. But you can't cling to that hope unless you've had an encounter. And so right now, we're going to enter a response time. And it's Jesus' desire to reveal himself. And he wants you to know him more. You may be coming in this morning longing for an encounter with Jesus. And we're going to make space for that here and now. I want to invite you to stand. Jesus teaches us to pray. He tells us to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the central desire for every follower of Jesus. It's that God's rule and reign would come here. In order for, for that to be fully realized, God is looking for a community who's hungry for him. His word says that he searches the earth to and fro, looking for those whose hearts are loyal towards him, that he may show himself strong on their behalf. All throughout the gospels we see Jesus and the kingdom, the king and the kingdom breaking in because people were looking for him. People were longing for him. People were expecting him. Here at Zion, we want to be a community who's expectant for God to show up. And not in a way that's hypey or, you know, uh, emotional for emotional sake, but in a way that is true to the scriptures and faithful to who Jesus is. And so this time of response 
is an embodied way of us saying, God, move here. Now, a few months ago, I felt like I heard God invite me into something, and it was this, gather the hungry. God's longing to do something beautiful in Valencia County. But before he does that, he gathers a remnant, the people who are hungry for God to move, who want him to move more than anything. And not for the sake that we see him move, but because we just want more of him. We just want more of who he is. And I believe that Jesus is inviting us into this. And so hear this. If you're the hungry ones, if you're the one who want more of him, when you hear that, that, that Paul's prayer that we would continually receive more of the spirit to have revelation and wisdom that we may know him better and something in your spirit was calling out saying, yes, I want more, I want more, we want to gather the hungry. I want to be with people who want Jesus more than anything. Like, more than anything, no, no hype, no frill, sincere, I want Jesus more than anything. And so right now, we want to call our church to respond. If this is you, if you want Jesus more than anything, if you want more of him, if you want more of his goodness, more of his power, more of his love, and not for the sake of doing things, but for the sake of it's just him and falling in love with him and wanting more of him, I want to invite you to respond. And the way you respond is by coming forward and just placing your hands wide open and saying, Jesus, I want more of you. And as you do, people are going to come alongside you and pray that you would experience more of God today. An apocalypse of Jesus now, where you see him for who he is. So now we're going to do that as we respond. We're going to gather the hungry and say, God, we are desperate for you and we want more of you. And as we do, we will worship.